You are listening to the Girl on Book Action podcast. Now with more speaking and less reading. This month we're reviewing Alias Grace and The Blind Assassin, both by Margaret Atwood. Your reviewers are Irene, also known as Doomwench, and Amanda, also known as Ren. We decided to class the joint up a bit this month and talk to you about <gasps> literature. Do you know what's worse? It's Canadian feminist literature. Wait, 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 wait. Don't run off. We promise. It's good stuff. Margaret Atwood is one of the authors that is the most important to Amanda and I. We both got into her early, and her novels shaped the way our malleable young brains looked at things. Deep, right? We've talked about reviewing Handmaid's Tale for a while. It's a sci-fi-ish feminist look at a 1984 type of dystopian novel. But we both remember entering a patriarchy-hating fugue state after reading it last, and didn't dare record and distribute the insane ranting that it would have caused. Instead, we picked a couple less rage-inducing novels, Alias Grace and the Blind Assassin, because apparently we're going to read through her bibliography alphabetically. For those of you not reading Canadian feminist literature of the mid-90s, surely there's only one or two of you, Alias Grace is the retelling of the story of Grace Marks, an infamous murderess. I bet I've got your attention now. Atwood stitches together a story out of the piecemeal, sometimes contradictory bits of information about Grace from newspapers and 19th century novels. The framing device for the story is that Simon Jordan is trying to make it big as a modern psychiatrist and to raise his profile and get a patron. He's attempting to get Grace's story out of her. She had a breakdown and claims not to remember the night that she and her maybe lover killed Thomas Kinnear, their boss, and Nancy Montgomery, Kinnear's housekeeper and mistress. We learn Grace's history and watch as Simon is basically a bastard to everyone he meets. After giving myself a few days to think about it, I think what surprised me most about Alias Grace were the regular bursts of humor. It's got a bleak, hopeless 19th century setting and is about the joyless life of a possible psychopath. But I ended up laughing a hell of a lot more than I was expecting to. Atwood writes Marks with a sharp wit and Simon Jordan with an odd, but successful, mix of farcical trappings, the horrible things that an upper-class gentleman can do and get away with it, and black, black despair. Some of the sequences of him being seduced by his landlady could easily have had the Benny Hill theme playing behind them, but they were also a rather grim look at the power struggle between men and women. And that was the feeling of the whole book. Terrible things happened in a time where it was terrible to be anyone but an upper-class man. But there was this weird lightheartedness draped over the whole thing. Maybe my sense of humor is broken, but as well as being an extremely uncomfortable read, it was at times really funny. As Atwood mentions in the novel, people love sex and violent death, and I'm certainly not exempt. Because this was an extremely quick read, despite being large enough to bludgeon someone with. However, the end was a letdown. The actual chapters leading up to Grace recalling the murder are excellent, as are the murder scenes themselves. It's all nicely ambiguous, and having two layers of unreliable narrators, the bastard Simon and the murderous Grace, should be confusing, but it really isn't. However, when Simon pushes past Grace's retelling and tries to get to the truth using a blend of hypnotherapy and seance, the book lost me. We spent a lot of time setting up the spiritualists in the novel, they're a 19th century group of frauds who claimed they could contact the dead, but adding, 
But adding a layer of the supernatural, or even faked supernatural, on top of the lies and possible insanity was just one layer too many. I'd have been happy to leave things vague and with everyone unsatisfied, no one being sure what actually really happened. The hypnotist sequence felt too pat, but at the same time, since we weren't meant to trust it, you can't trust anyone in this book, it didn't really give us any further answers. Despite my dissatisfaction with that tangent, overall it was an excellent book. Watching Simon be self-deceiving and trying to convince himself that he's a good guy would have been fun on its own. But the added portrait of a psychopath, the messed up sexual relationships, and the surprisingly compelling setting, I typically find Canadian period pieces dull. Dull. So dull. Actually made Alias Grace a favorite Atwood novel of mine. Somehow, Amanda got the better deal again. Uh-huh. Rem- remember that time she got to reread Silk and I got the Sleepless Nights? I need to learn to negotiate harder. But anyway, on to The Blind Assassin. I read this all the way back in 2003, and all I remembered is that I didn't enjoy it very much. I know that at that time, I felt that the two different sections of the novel, the iris sections and the blind assassin bits, were too jarring, that just as I would get into one of them, it would switch to the other. This time through, that wasn't a problem, which I assume means that I've become a more sophisticated reader. But I still didn't enjoy the book. A bit about the story and the structure before I tell you my problems with it. In The Blind Assassin, Atwood tells the story of Iris Chase Griffin, an old lady who went from being well-off to poor to rich and back to poor. So the novel not only follows her life, but also the life of her hometown, Port Ticonderoga, I probably said that wrong, but, you know, it's a difficult name. Interspersed between Iris's present and her reminiscences about the past is The Blind Assassin, a novel written by Iris's sister, Laura, and published after Laura's suicide. And this novel is also split. One part is pillow talk between a well-off girl and her lover who is a communist, The other is the story that he is telling her, which is a sci-fi tale set on a distant planet. And between these two narratives are newspaper articles about real-life events in Toronto High Society during Iris's life. Enough layers for you? Honestly, I was bored reading this book. The first 400 or so pages were very, very slow. The only time things got interesting was during the blind assassin sections. I understand that the point of telling Iris' story, her childhood, her marriage, which at least started to make things more interesting, and what happens to her family shows that she's a woman who lets other people run her life. But damn, it was dull. And frustrating. I just wanted to smack her and get her to stop being such a whiner. A boring whiner. Ugh. It is like Louis without the saving grace of being a blood-sucking undead monster. And yes, it depicts a certain time and place where women really didn't have the choices we have today, but Laura shows that there are other options. They just aren't as financially comfortable. The reason the blind assassin sections are way more interesting is that, for one, there's the sci-fi story element, and there's also a real human relationship with emotions and passion whereas Iris's life is pretty bland. I know that there is a point 
to Iris being passive, that it shows a type of woman, a woman that was a product of the times, but it really grated on me that she was our point of view character. The other element I want to talk about that isn't the interviewing of the two different stories is the unreliable narrator. Now, I can hear you groaning about college English classes and discussions of the unreliable narrator, but deal with it. I want to talk about it. I don't trust Iris. Sure, she says that since no one will read what she's writing until after she's dead, she can be honest, but I don't think that's true. While she questions her decisions with the aid of hindsight, I don't feel that it's enough. Regardless of her intentions, she casts herself as a martyr. Look at me and how the restrictive nature of society brought me down. See how strong-willed people screwed me out of what's mine because I'm weak-willed and pliable, because I was raised to be that way. Yeah, terrible. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll keep it deliberately vague, but even her acts of rebellion are suspect since she doesn't claim them. They are secret acts, until after she dies, and I question even those. In the way, her last confession is petty. Sure, it might be true, but I feel that it's not. To me, she's trying to take away from the legend of Laura and claim the legacy for herself, because she has nothing and no one will remember her. Finally, this is a Margaret Atwood novel, which means it was filled with pithy observations about society, people, and the world in general. It's too bad they were all buried beneath this boring old lady's life story. My book is full of little pink sticky notes for passages I thought were thought-provoking or well-expressed, but that didn't make the novel less of a slog. Ultimately, The Blind Assassin has to be my least favorite Atwood novel, of the ones I've read, and it's hugely disappointing. I don't recommend you read it unless you're an avid fan and have read pretty much everything else of hers. Now for an erudite discussion. Before we talk about these two books and, you know, offer you some interesting thoughts about them, I'd just like to welcome our special guest on this episode, my cat. If you were listening carefully to my review, you probably heard her saying hello in the background. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was hard for me to keep my shit together while that was going on. <laughs> it was hard for me not to shush her, but I didn't want to lose my flow. Just do that in the show. Just say, uh, shush, sunshine, shush. Uh, Tinkerbell. <laughs> and Margaret, oh, uh, right. Sunshine's the fat one. Sunshine's the one I named. Tinkerbell's the one my mom named. Both fat. No, Tinkerbell's not fat at all. She's fatty, tiny. Fatty, fat, fat. But you would never know it because she hides from people. <laughs> and instead of the Caitlin R. Kiernan corner this week, we have talking about Irene's cats. Which I'm sure is even more amusing. You are a stereotype. I am not. You're going to be a weird chick who gets eaten by her cats. Well, right now it's cat singular, but if I could have more than one, yeah, you're probably right. Let's talk about Margaret Atwood. <laughs> Another woman who will probably get eaten by her cats. <laughs> um, we didn't realize it at the time, but these actually were um, pretty similar novels, except that The Blind Assassin wasn't very good. Yeah. And Alias Grace really sort of rocks. It does sort of rock. They both um, 
have the sort of the framing device of women looking back at their lives and, and recalling what happened. And they both have super, super unreliable narrators where you can't believe a thing that comes out of their lying mouths. Yeah. And I don't know. It was strange that it turned out that they were so similar when we didn't pick them for that reason. No, we picked them pretty much at random. Yep. I I picked uh, Alias Grace because I thought it'd be interesting to read about a murder, and it was. And I picked Blind Assassin because I hadn't read it since 2003, and I was hoping maybe I'd change my opinion of it. Not so much. No. I think I might like it less now. I don't know, it's weird because um, you'd think that the story about somebody who was probably probably something wrong with her mentally and he got she got messed up and messed around and and ended up murdering some people and spent her entire life in prison from about 16 would be the sadder story but it really wasn't no it really really wasn't i think it's because of the way that atwood portray- portrayed grace because grace was sort of she had this sort of funny way of looking at things and she was she just sort of accepted everything and she wasn't and she didn't depressed she about didn't, it yeah she didn't seem like a sad sack like she even though she was you know sewing clothes in prison she still looked at things with sort of a detached humorous eye whereas iris was just like wine 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 my life was so boring and horrible and all these terrible things happened and i had no control over anything Oh, but she totally did have control over it. This is a type of um, feminist novel that I read a bunch of them, where they're trying to show how hard it is to be a woman in a certain time, or the stresses put on a woman uh, by showing them happen to someone who doesn't fight back. Oh, and I just, I can't handle it. It just, it doesn't make me feel like feminist rage. It just makes me feel regular rage. Yeah, I wonder if it's because... We don't live in that time that we can't relate to these characters because, I mean, I would never let anybody treat me the way that Iris let people treat her. But, I mean, there's other women in the story who, you know, they aren't equal to men, but they, you know, get what they want out of life and they, they, you know, take charge. Yeah, Laura does it and um, that painter chick, Callie? Yeah, and um, Freddie, um, the the horrible sister-in-law. Who I never thought was that horrible, because at least she was taking charge of things. Yeah, but she might have been a bit of a bleh, rape apologist. Yeah. Just a bit, just a little bit of a rape apologist. Just a little bit, but... At least she was, well, while she apologized for it, she was willing to admit that it happened, whereas Iris sort of, like, totally sort of ignores it until it's way too late. And then she can feel sorry for, uh, to, she can feel sorry to herself, about herself. Yeah, because she just didn't see it, and then it was too late. I felt, actually, that both of the books sort of came off the hinges uh, toward the end. Um, the whole possibility of pedophilia in uh, Blind Assassin and the uh, the whole seance is alias Grace possessed bit, or is uh, Grace Marks possessed bit. They both were a bit like daytime TV. Yeah, a little bit. 
So I don't know if it was just because the books were getting so long that she ran out of ideas and just threw stuff in there to get towards the ending, or if, you know, maybe we're just sort of callous about the pedophilia and irritated with the seance. Yeah, because it just, it seemed um, out of place. Like, it seemed like there was more than enough suffering going on in Blind Assassin without adding that in there. And there was more than enough sort of interest and mystery in, in Alias Grace without putting that in. Yeah, but I guess maybe she wanted to include the spiritualists as sort of um, a lame pastime of the upper classes. Well, it was totally a lame pastime of the upper classes, and, like, everybody was into it. So I can see why she wouldn't want to ignore it. But um, it was it was a real letdown. Yeah, it sort of was. And, and the whole thing, was it Jeremiah? Was it not? Yeah, there's a character that um, Grace meets early on in the book, and he's a, he's a real guy. Other people see him. He... We're pretty sure he exists, but later on she just keeps seeing him, like, wearing different disguises, and it sort of seems like maybe he's not a real guy. Or maybe she mistakes other people for him, and she just assumes that it's him, and he's wearing a disguise. Because she's crazy. She's definitely crazy. That's the one thing I don't doubt about that book, is that Grace Marks is crazy. Oh, totally crazy. I mean, she blacks out and doesn't remember long periods of time, and uh, I genuinely, I'm not sure if she remembers the murders or not, but she definitely does have blackouts. Yes, she does, and she acts differently sometimes, and I mean, obviously they sent her to the asylum for a reason. The other thing, um, uh, uh, getting back to the blind assassin a little bit, uh, was that the really the only really compelling part, and you touched on this in your summary, was the, and this is a bit confusing, because in The Blind Assassin, there is a book called The Blind Assassin that was supposed to have been written by Laura that has uh, the sci-fi pillow talk and the, the story of her and an illicit lover. Yes, which also points to the really complicated framing in this. I mean, how many different layers can you have? Because you don't just have the two novels side by side. You also have all those newspaper clippings and all that stuff in there. So there's a lot of different stuff going on in that book. And it's the same in um, in Alias Grace, because you have her retelling her past, and we follow around the bastard Simon um, as he does things, and then we have newspaper clippings and letters, like correspondence between people, but that never got confusing. Like, I wasn't, I didn't have a problem with the, the complicated framing. Yeah, it's just somehow seemed to flow together more seamlessly in Alias Grace than it did in The Blind Assassin, but I've sidetracked your point now. I had a point. Yeah, no, no, no. I just thought, um, honestly, The Blind Assassin would have been a stronger novel if you cut it in half and just did The Blind Assassin, where you had sci-fi versus this sort of harsh, unrelenting reality. But I kind of get the feeling that um, Atwood didn't do that, because she seems a bit ashamed that she's a sci-fi writer. Yeah, you know, those genre writers, they've just got such a bad rap. And I um I read a bit about a seminar that she did with um 
Who was this? Ursula Yoon or Esther Fraser or one, one of the uh, one of the other big chick sci-fi authors. Uh, and everything that she said made it sound sort of ashamed that she was sometimes put into that category. I think that's sort of lame. I mean, sci-fi and fantasy are not, you know, that bad. You shouldn't be ashamed of writing in those genres. There's some really great work out there in genre fiction. I think it's a bit of a holdover, too, from um, an older time, because it's becoming more and more acceptable to write, like, literate genre fiction now, where you have the complicated language and the complicated stories, but the elements of you're in space, or there is some kind of supernatural thing going on here that we don't know what it is. Yeah. Let's hope Let's hope that we see more of that, because, I mean, Alias Grace in my opinion, and Blind Assassin sort of straddle that sort of that in-between space between literature and genre. And the more they meld, the better, in my opinion. Well, yeah, because it'll improve uh, genre and it will make a lot of literature more accessible and give literature more to talk about because there's only so many period pieces uh, you can write or so many pieces about people sitting around in their apartments being sad. Yeah, slice-of-life stories sort of... I don't know. There's only so many slice-of-life stories you can tell. Oh, reading about the drudgery of day-to-day life just makes me want to kill myself. Can't do it. That's why magical realism is kind of cool, too, which is also straddling the boundary between literature and genre. And there's a lot more of that now, so you can have... You're griping about day-to-day life, but you can also have sort of a an unreal skew to it where other stuff can happen. Yes, exactly. And it opens up the language choices, too. You don't have to... It doesn't have to be um, super prosaic. Yeah, and I mean, Atwood writes... Well, she calls it speculative fiction, but we'll call it sci-fi because... Um, Oryx and Crake and Year of the Flood are totally sci-fi novels. Those are straight-up sci-fi. I mean, we're in the post-apocalyptic future, and there's, like, uh, hybrid science creatures. That's sci-fi. Yeah, and Handmaid's Tale is sort of sci-fi, too, because it's a dystopian novel. Yeah, just you've got future technology, and we're in a, we're in a bleak future. It's very sci-fi. Yeah, so she's a sci-fi writer. And, uh, honestly, I mean, uh, the Penelope the ad is very fantasy. Yeah, because it's a retelling of a myth, so that's really fantasy, so. She's a genre. She, Atwood writes genre. She writes genre. And uh, whenever she says she doesn't, it's because she's ashamed. Because she doesn't know that it's okay to write genre. It's totally alright now. It is, and The Blind Assassin would have benefited from being a genre novel instead of being this boring retelling of some old lady's life. That seems to be a lot of Canadian literature. Um, And some of it I like. Like, I don't like a lot of Canadian writers because I am a self-hating Canadian. But, um, like, I like Margaret Lawrence, and she writes a lot of stuff where it's old ladies remembering, like... Remembering the past and how much it sucked. Um, but that a lot of Canadian literature is about that. Yeah. I've sort of... 
tried to avoid Canadian lit a little bit too. I like uh, Thompson Highway, okay. I liked um, I, I liked some Margaret some Margaret Lawrence, but like the Stone Angel, which was basically a sad old woman remembering how horrible it was to live in Saskatchewan. I think I've read her, a book of hers. I think it was The Diviners, and that was it. wasn't bad. It's just I was like, well, I could just be reading Margaret Atwood instead. What did the sad old woman do in The Diviners? Oh, I don't remember. It was so long ago. Some sad old woman thing? <laughs> Probably. We shouldn't laugh, because this is going to be us. In, in a couple of years, we'll be sad old women remembering things. Shush! This is not... that We still have lots of years left. You know, like ten or twenty. Faces eaten by cats. Yes. <laughs> Writing diaries. Yes. Hey, I, I write a journal, which, you know, you're in charge of burning upon my death. Oh, totally. Burn, burn notice. Burn without reading. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be some old lady whose journals get published or some crap. Ugh. Ugh. Then you'll have young whippersnappers making fun of you. But we've totally gotten off topic now. Oh, uh, we're totally off topic. Um, but back to the novels. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Canadian authors. We're talking about Canadian authors. <laughs> what Canadian authors? Uh, that's pretty much it. Um, isn't Michael Ondaatje a Canadian author? Uh! <laughs> <laughs> I take it you don't like his work. Oh, I hate Michael Ondaatje. He thinks he's so great. I remember I liked The English Patient, but I think that might have been because I had a really good teacher who taught it. He just, uh, he just comes off so smarmy in his books. He just thinks he's, the sun shines out of his ass. I cannot stand Michael Ondaatje. Well, so much for Canadian authors. <laughs> yeah, Canadian authors corner. Maybe there's one or two. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Kelly Armstrong is a Canadian author. Oh, I like her. She, speaking of genre, I like her. Yeah, she writes those Women of the Other World books. Yep, werewolves bouncing around. Yep, um, yeah, that's it for my knowledge of Canadian authors, I think. Yeah, me too. I know a lot of Canadian comedians who are good, but not so much Canadian authors. It might be a tiny bit sad for it is us. A bit sad. Oh well, Margaret Atwood is cool. Margaret Atwood is cool. If you haven't read any Margaret Atwood, definitely, definitely give one of her books a try. Just not The Blind Assassin. Don't read The Blind Assassin. <laughs> Just don't. That said, I think we've stolen about enough of your reading time for one month. We'll be back. We'll be back again in the last week of January, where we'll be discussing Songs of Love and Death, an anthology edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozwa. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at girlonbookaction at gmail.com or you can post comments on our blog, girlonbookaction.blogspot.com.